Uh, one of the things that we do when things aren't right in life is that we try to make a fresh start. Uh, we start a new job, a new relationship, whatever. We put the hope for real change in some kind of new beginning. We often do this, of course, at the start of a new year. I wonder if you made any re resolutions at the turn of the year. How long did it take before the fresh start became the same old, same old? It doesn't take very long at all. Some, of course, uh, try this fresh start, this new beginning, when facing up to far more serious problems too. Uh, like ultimate fighting champion, uh, Conor McGregor. Disclaimer, by the way, I'm not encouraging anyone to watch this. I think it's overly violent and not good for your soul. It's my personal opinion. Um, his anger, though, is big news in sports. Last year, he was charged for smashing up a bus full of fellow fighters. Uh, last week, he claimed that after he had served his community service uh, among the poor in New York, that he was making this fresh start. Only a few days later, he is wild-eyed and ranting, smashing a phone out of a fan's hand, stamping on it in anger, and sticking it in his pocket and being charged with robbery for it. Uh, how long did it take before the fresh start for McGregor became the same old, same old? Well, why do people find that fresh starts don't work? Ultimately, the Bible teaches that it's because the problem that we have as human beings isn't an external problem, it's an internal problem. And that's the lesson we find in Genesis 8 and 9. Last week, Matt walked us through part one of this uh, flood story. Uh, the flood was God's judgment on sin. The ark was God's grace to Noah, his protection and his salvation. Uh, Noah was God's commitment to humanity and really to Eve. Uh, it was the preservation of this commitment to send a snake-crushing savior, that key promise that you've got to look out for in all your Old Testament Bible readings until we get to Christ, of course. But this week is part two, where we see that a fresh start doesn't deal with sin. Only a savior can. A fresh start does not deal with sin. Only a savior can. And we've got two points tonight. Uh, one, fresh start, and two, same old. So number one, fresh start. Um, this is Genesis 8, 1 through to 9, 17. This is a fresh start. Genesis 8 sounds a lot like Genesis 1. I don't know if you noticed that as I was reading it earlier on. But it's, uh, if Genesis 1 is creation, then Genesis 8 is, you might say, recreation. It all sounds very familiar because in verses 1 to 14, you've got the same backdrop to Genesis 1. You've got a watery chaos, something hovering over the deep, the emergence of land, a world that's finally ready for human inhabitants, and then God's instruction to a figurehead. When you get to chapter 9, verse 1, it sounds very like that God is talking to Adam, but he's talking to Noah. Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. So there's no mistake in it. Noah is set before us in chapter 8 as a new Adam. It's a fresh start. Something else shows us that this is a fresh start. There's a new law laid down. At the heart of this new beginning is a deep respect for life. We see Genesis 9, 2-4 tells us that we should respect, 
to begin with, animal life. So God says, everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. You might sound, that doesn't sound like very respectful in the first instance, but God goes on to say, just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything, but you must not eat meat that has lifeblood in it. Lifeblood. What is lifeblood? How is that different from blood blood? Well, does it mean that there is a massive biblical prohibition on eating black pudding? Or does it mean that it, this necessitates a ritualistic handling of meat? No, it simply means that if blood is still pulsing in the thing, don't eat it. Don't eat it. By making sure your dinner's dead, God is saying that we're underlining the importance of respect for life and seeing it as a way of respecting him, the giver of life, not just human life, but life. And if that applies to animals made by God, how much more to humans made in the image of God? That's what God addresses in verses 5 to 7 of chapter 9. And it's not hard to see why. God says then in verses 5 to 7 to respect human life. Respect human life. I mean, if you've been here the last few weeks as we've walked through Genesis, you've got echoes of Cain and his murderous violence, Lamech rapping about how before his wives, how wonderfully violent he is, killing lots of people. It's a violent humanity that's depicted post-fall. So then God presents humanity 2.0 with this fresh start. He says, for your lifeblood, I will demand an accounting, even from an animal, because he goes on and say, I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, verse 6, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. So what does he say? He's saying, I'm protecting human life. It's sacred to me. I'm going to make the animals scared of you. So just in case you're wondering if you're movie lovers, Planet of the Apes can't happen. No more murder either, which is good news, post-Cain, post-Lamech. As a crime, he's saying here, this is the law that's laid down, as a crime, such murder is punishable by death. So you see what God is doing. God is laying down the law in order, order to uphold the sanctity of life in all in what has effectively been a murderous society. So here's a question for us before we move on to the next section. Does our society respect the sanctity of human life? What do you think? I reckon most people in our city would say yes. We have many laws that seem to say that we do. We certainly know what to call the mosque attacker in Christchurch in New Zealand this past week. Murderer is what you read in the newspapers. But... What do we call those who work at Dignitas in Switzerland, practicing euthanasia? And what about abortion? Can a society claim to respect the sanctity of life when within the last 50 years it has our nation deprived 6.7 million of living a life? 98% of those abortions performed for social reasons. 
Now, I understand entirely that this is a debated issue centered on the question of when does life begin? Ultimately, in short, in a very, very short, to argue that it begins anywhere but conception is dangerous to those who are already living. But I also know that this is an emotive issue. And some of you may have had abortions. Some of you men may have encouraged it. Some of you may be tempted to in the future. But please hear me on this. Abortion is a sin, but it's not an unforgivable sin. There is grace, full and free, and there is good that can come from those who find such forgiveness when they repent and trust in Christ for it. And what I mean by that is that they become a true testimony of the gospel's power. And, in fact, they become the best ambassadors for the kind of things that God values, like this. The sanctity of life. If you have thought about this, if you know someone who would be helped by talking about this, you can feel free to talk to anyone in the pastoral team. I've also laid out about 10 of these little booklets on the bookstall. Uh, you can just take one of those. It's called Healing After Abortion. God's mercy is for you. If this is a subject that's, that's, uh, that you struggle with, I want you to take one of those away free of charge and read it and think about it. What about us, though, as a church? Uh, how do we as Christians respect life, especially the sanctity of human life? Um, well, there are certainly things that we can do very, very practically, like pray about these matters. We can speak out for the oppressed, whether in conversation with friends or in more formal means like letters to MPs or we can stand with our family of churches in the FIEC and with groups like the Christian Institute uh, through whom our voice can be heard. Another way is that we can think seriously about adoption as an option. And we can exercise love with those in our church family who may have sinned in this way or be tempted to by accepting those who repent and serving them whatever the circumstances, even if that means helping them raise their child that they would otherwise have aborted. That's our responsibility. And we should gladly accept that. So what I want us to see here is this fresh start is by far, it's a recreation. The new law laid down that underlines life is sacred, all life, but especially life that's made in the image of God, human life. So there's recreation and a law laid down, but crucially in here, there is a new promise made. The first promise, you should learn it in Genesis 3.15, where God promised Eve and her children after her a savior for her sins, for humanity's sins. Well, here's the second crucial promise that we find in the Old Testament, and it's in nine, chapter 9, verses 8 to 11. Now, this time, God promises all creation life. It's basically an assurance of his ongoing mercy in letting sinful people like us live. After all, now think about it, judgment has already come, but sin remains. In the ark, the promise of a savior from Genesis 3.15 is certainly preserved, but so is the same sin that necessitated it. 
So what is to stop God sending another flood? You can't help but think as Noah got off the ark that that was going through his head. But what is to stop God doing it again? His word, his promise, something he will never, ever break. If you look with me at chapter 9, verse 8 to 11, we'll read it. God said to Noah and his sons with him, in other words, this is to humanity, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature. So that is an extensive promise. The birds, the livestock, and the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I will establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. That must have been reassuring for Noah. As I said, can you imagine his anxiety every time he saw a cloud in the sky or felt rain? You know, we feel a spot of rain and it's like, oh man, I didn't bring my umbrella or my hair's going to get messed up. Or if Noah felt rain, uh uh-oh. The inclination of the human heart is sinful even from childhood. What is to stop him sending a daily deluge He's already shown his judgment before. Well, what's going to stop him? Well, until the appointed time when Christ returns, he's given us his promise. And then God gives us this sign, makes a big deal of the sign to mark this covenant, this rainbow, as you see in verse 13. It's a reminder. It's a picture. Now, what does a rainbow remind you of right now? What does a rainbow remind you of? Homosexuality, right? It is the symbol of the LGBT movement. And rainbow flags are flown as symbols of identity for those who want to say I'm gay and even for solidarity for those who say I support gay people. I'm approving of this. But what is it supposed to remind you of? Indeed, what does it remind God of? He talks about, like, he's the one who sees it. He remembers something in particular. It reminds us of this. God's ongoing mercy towards a a world of sinners who do deserve a daily deluge of judgment, but because of his word, have it withheld from them. If only those who waved those flags knew that that God is unbelievably loving and merciful and patient. And every day is a gift. It's another chance to change direction. To turn from your sin in sorrow over it, agreeing with God that it's wrong, and to turn to him in faith, claiming only relationship with Christ as your basis for coming. It's the only way. That's called repentance. We repent in faith. And that's what he calls us to do. The right response to this, of course, is modeled by Noah. He, earlier on in the passage, as soon as he gets it, as soon as he comes out the ark, he acknowledges his gratitude to God and his awe before God by offering this sacrifice. He gets it, and God makes his promise. We do well to follow him in faith. Do we thank God for Jesus, who became the 
definitive, once for all, God-pleasing sacrifice for us. He gave us real hope for real change, not in a new beginning, but in a new covenant. A new promise made in his, what? Blood. His blood. And who's to say he's going to go back on his word? His word says he won't. He is true to his words. It's a new covenant sealed with his blood, offered to all, applied to those who turn from sin and trust in Christ. We, we need him to deal with humanity's chronic sin problem. A problem starkly evident in point two in Noah's sin in verses 18 to 29. So we have this fresh start, but pretty soon we have this same old, don't we? And here is the stark reality. The world is washed, but sin remains. Sin is not outside humanity. It's not an external problem. It's an internal problem. I mean, Noah is put forward by us earlier on in chapter 6 as this, this man of righteousness. He was one, the one identified pre-flood as the man who walks with God. And then that gets people who've read Genesis already. Oh, he not walked with God. Here's a guy who's going to be taken up. He's, he's proper righteousness. In a man. But this man of righteousness sins. And here we have effectively a rerun of the fall. Noah shares Adam's occupation, takes fruit, ends up naked and ashamed. Just like Adam did. Why? He sinned. He got drunk. Now it's not a sin to drink, but drunkenness is a sin. According to Galatians 5.13, it is an obvious act of the sinful nature. It leaves you without your proper faculty, proper reasoning. It leads you to become foolish. That's why people sing at karaoke's. But no one knew this. He's not daft. He passed out because he's let his drinking get out of control. And don't we all know those struggles with temptation? Don't we all know those struggles when desire leads into sin? Oh, it might not be alcohol for you. It might be something else. But we know that, don't, don't we? We know what that's like. We know we're not perfect. Can we establish that? He's out of control, so out of control that he uncovered himself. And in Old Testament literature, that is a biggie. It is a sign of True shame. Now, sin snowballs. Even if you practice it in private, it's never a private matter. It leads others into sin, as we see in the case of his son, Ham. So not only do we have the man of righteousness sinning straight away after this, we've got the son of the, son of the man of righteousness sinning as well, Ham who, instead of averting his eyes when he comes, ac comes across his, his dad, he looks longer than he ought to have looked. That's, the, that's what the meaning of the, the Hebrew term is. You know, if it happened today, though, he'd maybe have Instagrammed it, or paparazzi would have published it. Quite happy to bring down this oh, man of righteousness. 
But instead of feeling sorrow or pity for his dad and covering him, he leaves him naked to go and get his brothers. Hey, dad's smashed and he hasn't got any clothes on. Come and see this. But sin's not funny. Not in the slightest. Mocking someone who in their weakness has fallen into sin is not funny. Even though our society creates industry around drunkenness and nakedness, it's actually not funny. It's very serious. We know that Ham has sinned because of what the text says, but that is highlighted for us all the more by the actions of his brothers. They provide a covering and are very careful in the way they provide the covering for their dad. They, they won't look, they won't cast their eyes on sin. That sounds very godlike, doesn't it? There's holiness in it. And in the end, though, this uh, behavior of Noah's sons have consequences that roll on through the generations. Now, remember I said when we introduced Genesis back at the start of chapter 1, Israel here is hearing this on the brink of the promised land. They're hearing this story. They're about to enter a, pl enter a place called what? Canaan. Canaan. The people who have descended from Ham and his son Canaan. And they're left in no doubt, this is this, this ham. This is the kind of stock that these people will be from. No morals. And we know that from history. These were the kind of people who sacrificed their children and conducted themselves in wicked ways. They had no regard for life. And there's a lesson for us in this, of course. What a family values matters. We know that these days as well. Now, when we come to a passage like this, it can leave us feeling a little bit disappointed. It's not uncommon for people to think, man alive, if someone as righteous as Noah falls, what hope have I got for living a godly life? He heard God talk to him. What hope have I got? If someone who's experienced such a spectacular salvation, he's been in the ark. What hope is there for me who kind of quite quietly came to Christ. Well, I want to say that those kinds of questions really expose some serious misunderstandings. Because the truth is, our only hope for saving righteousness is to take Christ's righteousness as our own. To wear it, if you like. And our only hope for ongoing progress in a Christian life isn't contingent on what we experienced or how superb we think we are. It's not, our, our pro, ongoing progress in godliness isn't contingent on what we experience, but who it is that lives in us. The Holy Spirit. And who it is that's promised to be at work in us, the Holy Spirit. And who it is that he has promised to work in us, Jesus Christ. His very likeness. As 2 Corinthians 3 says, we are being changed. Bit by bit. With ever increasing glory. Into the likeness of Jesus. So a passage like this reminds us. Of where righteousness lies. It reminds us on whom we depend. For salvation. And for godly living. 
it reminds us that sin has consequences. Like the Canaanite behavior has its root in their father's behavior. It makes us ask, dads, what kind of example are we setting for our families? And a passage like this reminds us that everybody sins. We can't put people like Noah or your pastors or others on pedestals. All these so-called heroes of the faith, even in the Old Testament, sin. Noah gets drunk. Abraham takes a second wife. David kills a man to get another wife. They're not models of perfection teaching us exceptional morality. They're here fundamentally to show us a couple of things. One, that we need this savior from outside of us. That's the whole point of the Old Testament. I mean, page after page after page, we're meant to draw the conclusion that uh, uh, no, no, none of these guys, they're not the separate Christian savior. No, 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 not this guy either. No, we need someone from outside of us to save us. The Old Testament fundamentally can be summarized with, we can't do this on our own. We need somebody to save us. The second thing it helps us understand is that this is what the Christian life is really like. They're as weak and fallible as we are. But by God's grace, he's still at work, forgiving and shaping. The truth of the matter is, Christ is the only hope, our only hope, for the only fresh start that works. He is our only hope for the only fresh start that works. The fresh start we need, it's not like a new beginning, it's not a new relationship, it's not a new job. The problem isn't an external thing for us, it's an internal thing for us. The fresh start we all need is called new birth. You must be born again, Jesus said. And though we experience the same old, same old sin, having become Christians, we must remember that though the penalty for sin is gone, the presence of it remains, it has to be fought with, you have to make war with it, you don't entertain it, you don't invite it in, you don't feed it and fatten it. It will cut you down. You kill it. Sin makes the Christian life a struggle in many ways, but the good news is there is this final redemption to come. When we will be given the greatest fresh start that we could ever imagine. And this time, there will be no same old, same old sin. It won't be same old, same old. It will be brand new, brand new, brand new. When Christ returns, his final act will be to purge the world of sin, not with flood, but as 2 Peter 3 says, this time with fire. Not in a destructive sense, I believe in a purifying sense though. And as he purges the world of sin, he takes his people home. The new heaven and new earth come. And if you're not a Christian, 
your only hope is to hide yourself in Christ, just like Noah did in the ark. For if things aren't right, the only fresh start that works is to believe in Jesus. Jesus says, you must be born again. I hope you got a bulletin when you came in. There's a prayer in there that if you want to pray the kind of prayer of faith, of turning from sin and turning to God, it's in there. You can follow that pattern and make it your own. He is our only hope in our struggles. Let's pause now and take a few minutes just to reflect in the quietness. Take a minute and then we're going to stand and sing a couple of songs that remind us of where our hope rests.